Hello, my friends. Hello, my life warriors, wherever you are in the world. I do hope you're having a good day. Uh, welcome to the Day In, Day Out podcast. Uh, this is episode 67, where I had the immense pleasure to have uh, CJ Wally uh, on our podcast today. He is a screenwriter, film producer. Uh, he is also the founder of Script Revolutions. Uh, yeah, Basically, I'd have to say he was a very interesting chap to speak to. Gave me a lot of insight into what, uh, basically, uh, the sort of ins and outs of the whole sort of movie industry. I have to say, very interesting conversation. Uh, I look forward to having conversations with him in the future. But please, uh, sit back, uh, relax, and enjoy this uh this episode of the podcast. Thank you very much for your time and please subscribe. Peace. Oh. Ah, hello, my friends. Hello, my life warriors. Wherever you are in the world, I do hope you're having a good day. Welcome to the Day In, Day Out podcast. This is episode ooh, 67. Uh, yes, today I am very lucky to have and privileged to have uh, CJ Wally. Like, he is a screenwriter, producer. He is also the founder of Script Revolution as well. How are you today, sir? How are things in your world? I'm great, me. Well, thanks for having me on. It's, it's a sunny day in Stoke-on-Trent. Ah, uh, yes. Like, uh, well, that is, I've got to say, is there many sunny days in Stoke-on-Trent? It's always a sunny day in Stoke-on-Trent. <laughs> That's how we like to think up here. We have to. <laughs> yeah, the reason why I say this, like my lady, uh, she's from Manchester. So like the whole thing is uh, when, when, she, when she goes, oh, it's nice and sunny. I go, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of times I went up when, I, when she was living up in Manchester. Now she's in London. Uh, the amount of sort of sunny days I had, let's say they were few and far between. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a beautiful city. I love Manchester. It's fantastic. But yeah, I know what you mean. It all changes when you get up here. It really does. Oh, uh, indeed, indeed. Yeah, like before we start, like you are, like I'm, I've got a little bit of envy, I would say. You don't live too far away from Orton Towers. How many times have you been to Orton Towers? Um, an excessive number of times and um, it's quite normal for people here to to work there and um, I used to actually maintain and run their websites when I first started freelancing so yeah I mean we come a little bit blase to it here but um, yeah we're pretty proud of that place we're pretty proud to be nearby uh, I see I see to anyone who is outside of the UK Orton Towers is a large theme park I'll say the largest theme park in the UK. Uh, let's just say, if you're coming from London, it takes forever and a day to get there. But when you're here, it's well worth it. Like I've done many a four o'clock pilgrimage <laughs> to get there for the opening time. I'm uh, glad yeah. it was worth it. Oh, absolutely. No, no, I highly recommend. Yeah, I've got to say, with yourself, you have had a very, very busy seven years you've been kind of on it. <laughs> it's like, from what I can see, like looking through my notes here, you've mm -hmm. done 10 shorts, four features, one music video. And yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be frank, it, it's been it's been a, a, the best part of a decade. It's been quite a lonely majority to that decade. It's only in the last few years that things have really picked up. Um, you know, the nature of being a writer is you're quite distant. Um, but yeah, I've just been just at it, at it, and at it, just trying to build things up. And now things are really starting to to kick off for me, which is great. Mm. So, like, basically, with the start of your, like, was it a case of back in 2013, you went, okay, I'm going to just start writing and putting myself out there? Like, how did that sort of kick off? I, I well, it was, it was, it was earlier than that, it was 2012, uh-huh. and um, I had effectively, like, a midlife crisis. I had, like, this, I, I was working for myself, I had a freelance business that was doing very well, mm. and that started to kind of fall apart, and I was kind of not fitting in with that. And I, and I had this kind of big event in my life where, you know, it hit me really hard. You know, like I think it does for a lot of people. I wasn't really being a creative, wasn't really expressing myself. I was doing freelance web design, print design, but that's kind of like engineering. You don't get to be really creative. So I had this kind of major life event where I was looking at myself and thinking, this isn't where I want to be. This isn't making me happy. My head is full of these ideas, these movie ideas, these scenes, they keep me up at night. I really need to start applying myself into this area. I need to lean into this because otherwise it's going to drive me crazy. And the work I'm getting is not making me happy. Um, so yeah, to a large extent, it's that, it's that really strange thing, especially later in life. If you suddenly decide, I'm going to be an artist and it feels really 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 odd because you have that issue of well, what right do I to have that where is the history it's been 20 years of not doing it so it was that kind of event that, that triggered it excellent so like with regards to what was your sort of first uh short I would say because like from what I can see it was a short film, what? Yeah, so when you're trying to break in, and it, it is really tough to break in to an industry which has got massive supply compared to demand, it's got massive oversupply. Um, and if you want to get into the feature side, it's that's crazy. That's like that's all centralized pretty much in Hollywood with little bits around the world, and it's it's a it's a d- tricky group to break into. So a lot of writers we we will start writing short scripts you know less than 10 pages in the hope that maybe an an aspiring filmmaker or student um, makes that and I got really lucky um, early on Um, I listed one of the first short scripts I wrote which was about a struggling actress she um, was facing issues of of the difficulties of fame and things like that Um, and this was kind of before the kind of more of the female empowerment movement went into acting and and those areas and um, um, she uh, a a female student at London in London called Sandra Mitrovic she picked it up so I I got a, a short script made unusually early on and that spoiled me a little bit she did a great job mm-hmm. okay and like this is the thing um like i've had a, a couple of friends who've done short films where they've made them mm-hmm. and like it's a case of like with the writing side of things do you have to sort of get involved in sort of like finding like raising the finance to get the film done or is it your to- like once you've wrote it written that excuse me you're totally removed from it then 
Um, I, I think so. It really comes down to what the writer wants to do in terms of what involvement they want to have, and that and that's quite tricky um, because a lot of writers just want to write, get the script out there, and walk away. But then the writers themselves, you know, a lot of us, we care about how it gets made and how it looks, and we can be quite precious about it as well. So we want control. Well, you can't really have control or artistic control of a project unless you have overall control of a project in some way so it varies for a lot of writers some writers are happy to stick with the idea of i write a script i give it to you you pay for it mm. whatever you do with it fine i've washed my hands off. i'm going to go away i'm going to spend my money and and hopefully it will come out like i imagine whereas other writers writers more like myself we want to get involved in the production side. We want to get in, involved in raising finance, seeking attachments, scheduling, and, and everything else in, in between. Um, partly because we get some kind of creative control. Partly because it increases the chances of something getting made. But also, I mean, personally, I find it's like so much more fulfilling to get really kind of up to your elbows in the actual filmmaking world itself. And that's why I more recently moved into a writer producer role. Right. And with like, with moving into a writer producer role, what are sort of the differences with that? Because when you say producer, I imagine that is more involved. Yeah. I mean, I never thought I would have producer next to my name in any credits mm. and and now i've got it next to a bunch of of films which are effectively you know in, in in some early stage and we're held up right now because of uh because of the the covid situation but you know i had an actual film i was going to go over to la in july and we were going to make that and you know i'm a co-producer on that project as well as a few others so we we had a green light and that was really strange because i never thought I, I could go there. Like I always thought that was an ambition that was too far. There was too much to learn. You had to be in to a degree as kind of an elite club or you, or you had to be that kind of alpha personality, which goes out and says, I'm going to be a producer. No one can stop me. And I'm not that kind of guy. Mm. Um, but it came about because I was just so involved in so many different areas with previous projects so I learned all these things just by going out and doing them and being in the room and having to deal with them. And as a result of that, if you have any kind of genuine ability to go out and get something done, then um, people will latch onto that. People will be like, right, okay, we, we need someone who can actually make things happen who understands how these things work. Mm, no, I see. So with that, like I imagine though, like before you got into the realm of producing, there was a sort of an long a little bit of a pro learning process going on with that so was it just a case of like okay you wrote one and you went okay that's fine you wrote another and you were like okay that's fine what was that so, like the burning and was it just a burning ambition or is it just something a little bit more uh detailed yeah i you know it's really interesting because most people who've ever met me in my life see me as someone who's very laid back, always got quite a laid back attitude. Yeah. And I kind of sailed my way through the first 20 years. You know, I was, um, had, had my own office when I was 21. I was director of a marketing agency at 23, um, self-employed 
two times in different ways, Vegas, Singapore, you know, all these different things. And I was really chill with, with all of that. And then writing comes along and it's just crazy. It's just, it takes over me completely. Like absolutely. It's all I care about. It's all I want to do. And when I first kind of discovered writing, it, it was like, I didn't care what I lost. I didn't care if I was going to lose my house, my relationship, my connections with friends, my money, anything. I just didn't care about losing anything because all I cared about was writing. That was really, really strange experience to go through. And you kind of need that because it's a real walk in the desert. Um, you know, I tell people, give yourself at least a decade to get anywhere with this kind of thing because that's how long it's likely going to take at least before anyone even notices you exist. That's how tough it is. So, you know, with writing, it comes out of you. You don't really choose it. It chooses you and you can't walk away from it. I did try I, two or three times. I, I just could not take it anymore. You know, you're, you, you're not earning any money. You're flogging yourself. You're emotionally draining yourself and nothing's coming back in return. There's no feedback loop. Um, and it does, it drives you to the point where you're like, I can't do this to myself anymore. Um, I can't take the negative feedback. I can't take the negative news and stories. I can't carry on watching this slip by. Um, and that's what just keeps you going is this, this inner drive and this inner passion of just caring about the art form so much. So basically you would say it's akin to a calling, a never ending calling, but when you're actually on that actual project as well, um, I wouldn't say ob like an obsessional drive. Maybe that's a, maybe a little bit too strong, but maybe it's kind of like a pilgrimage. Like you start and by the time you get to the actual destination, that is your pilgrimage complete for that particular project, if you get what I mean. Yeah. I, when, so if it's writing or if it's actually getting a movie made, that it's a, it's a tough journey. You know, it's, it's intense. I, I just, I can't really think of anything like it. And writing can be like that if you really care about the story and getting as much emotion out of it as possible and turning it around in an efficient time and then actually getting a movie made. That's a, that's just like, that is unbelievable. But you come out of it with this sense of unity and team building. Like you, you're exhausted. You've done 18 hour days for five or six weeks and everything that can go wrong has gone wrong. And you've traveled around and all your clothes, they've got sand in them from being in the desert, you know, and yeah. salt in them from being near the sea and everything else. And all you can think of is, I want to start again right away. We've wrapped up, but no, I want to go back. I want to carry on. So it's very addictive in that side. But in terms of the art form, you know, you're always a student and that journey is, is never complete. Um, you, you know, that's how I like to look at it anyway. So, you know, you do have this goal, but the goal is almost abstract. There's no finish line. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's when any goal where there is no finish line, where you're sort of constantly having to push yourself, constantly growing. I think that's sometimes the best ones to have. Because there's so many famous people you see who like they achieve something, especially in the sporting in the sporting world. It's like I have achieved being the world champion at this, and then everything sort of falls apart for them pretty much after that. Because uh, kind of like Genghis Khan, they've got like they weep because they've got no more worlds to conquer. So it's like, what do I do now? And finding a sort of new direction 
is somewhat difficult. But if with writing, if it's a case of, yeah, you feel the next story, like lighting your fire to keep going, hey, that, that is a fortunate thing for anyone to have, I'd say. Um, must, be, must be a great feeling on a day-to-day. It is. I, I think, you know, the a storyteller's life is one of constantly looking for truths about life. It's looking for, for, for life affirming uh, um, um, truths that are universal. Um, and the more you discover those and the, the more you explore the world and you explore the human psyche and the way we are of each other and everything else and our position in the universe, you know, on every, on every level the more you have to say, the more you want to communicate to people, you know, these kind of philosophic discoveries that, that you either you make personally or you see or you experience or you, you learn about, you want to be able to communicate that in a very entertaining fashion. Um, and that's always a, a constant drive. But I think, you know, what you were saying there, Miwa, about, you know, people and they have these goals and they become the world champion. Mm. You know, something I've come to learn recently from some of the, the reading I've been doing is having one goal is dangerous. Setting a goal and saying, that's where I want to be. That's the top of the mountain. Mm. That's a really dangerous thing to do because firstly, you set that goal without really knowing anything about the goal itself other than that you have this kind of fictional kind of worshipping and fawning over it mm. and and as we know the way we move to, towards things it's never a straight line you don't go from here to here you go this way and then you go oh it's over here now oh no no it's over here and you zigzag and that zigzagging becomes less and less and less and, and, until you identify where the destination is yeah and part of discovering that destination is going down other roads and other paths. And that's really important to, to remain open to that, you know? And I say that as someone who, you know, as, as I said, you know, two minutes ago, I didn't ever expect to be a producer. Now I'm producing, that's a whole new adventure in my life and one that I'm, I'm really rewarded by. Oh, excellent. So like producer now, like a big, like big honcho on the film set, do you think you might be looking at the realm of directing uh, maybe sometime down the line? Well, I mean, I co-produce. So, so the thing about producing that's quite interesting is there's these, these kind of tears to it. Mm. Uh, and it's a, it's a bizarre role as well, because um, if you went and said, if you asked the average person on the street, what does a film producer do? That yeah. person would say, well, other than kind of walking around, bossing people around, I have no idea what a film producer would do, you know? And if you went to film producers and you said, what do film producers do? They'd also say, well, that's a really difficult question to answer because a lot of them just walk around set bossing people around. And it's that strange thing because it can encompass a whole range of different kind of tasks and roles and specialities and there's all these different kinds of producers and what you know there's 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 hierarchies so you have a lead producer you have executive producer you have co-producer you have assistant producers um and they all do different things so my role at the moment is i, I i'm a co-producer which means what i do is i effectively bring my skill sets um to to the lead producer who is kind of the, the head on show, you know, in, in most circumstances, and sometimes also the director in a lot of, well, actually, a lot of circumstances. Um, when you see what a lead producer and or director has to do on a day-to-day -day basis, it is terrifying. It is like, 
like this is all difficult enough but what this person is doing yeah it's like you watch them just cripple themselves you watch them exhaust themselves you watch them have to deal with 50 different issues per hour and they have to make this incredibly emotional moment happen time and time again so you can get every different shot taken cut you can possibly bit of, a bit of coverage that you can get to get this film made because at the end of the day you're making a product someone's invested in it you've got to get it made you've got to get it sold you've got to make their money back my god it sounds like it sounds like a day in the life of a producer is nightmarish long and if you're an actor you're getting away with maybe the easiest part of it all uh, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, uh, you know, uh, that's the interesting thing about being on a film set is how hard it is for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. it, but in different ways, the, the, the famous saying about being on a film set, because so many people want to be on one and then they, they get there and it's terribly boring is it's all about, you know, they say hurry up and wait, because that's what it's like. You, you like a bunch of people like your grips and your cinematographers and your, 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 your set designers or your prop masters and people like that, they rush in and they have to do all this work and your script supervisors running around, your production assistants running around and they have to get that already. And then you're kind of preparing the, the acting talent and the makeup artists and costume are all doing that to one side. And it's all this kind of, oh, it's going to start, it's going to start, it's going to happen. And then, whoom, you're off. And then, you know, the director's, you know, yelling action and takes are being made and everything just has to suddenly happen. Um, so it, it's really exciting for everybody. And it's tough for the actors. It's tough. It's a different style of working day. Um, they have to do a lot of getting in a particular mindset mm -hmm. um, of preparing themselves to what's going to happen. They have to be ready for sudden unexpected changes, potentially, particularly on like smaller productions. Um, and, and they have to be able to pour themselves into a moment. So what they're doing is they're becoming incredibly drained and it's a fulfilling, hopefully it's a very fulfilling kind of draining experience where they just pour themselves emotionally into a scene. They make a lot of creative discovery in that, in that process. They collect, they're collaborating, um, having to repeat things over and over because actors, there's a lot more going on than people realize, yeah. you know, in front of the camera, just the same there's a lot more going on behind it. Um, actors have to hit marks. They have to look in certain directions. They have to try and maintain a sense of continuity by repeating a, a performance over and over without creating any kind of jarring differences between cuts. Um, sometimes they, they have to act to effectively a brick wall because the nature of, of shooting them means you can't have someone for them to react to. So they, yeah, they have it tough in a different way, but um, yeah, the, the director, I mean, there's a reason why directors are kind of fawned over and worshipped on set, and it's because of the task, task that they have at hand. I'm liking it. I'm liking it a lot. Like, this is the thing, with all the work that goes behind, like, production, um, I've, I've been lucky enough to be on a TV set a couple of times, a game show in one time, and then, like, there was this it was fo a football tournament where you had celebrities on there and the sort of like you're clapping and it stops and you sit there and you wait. So I, I, I feel the pain of like, yeah, the quick, 
them hate. Uh, and I've only done that just as an audience member, say. I can only imagine what that must be like if you're having to do a film shoot. Uh, if it's a short, I think that might be slightly easier when it's a feature film. Oh my lord! Um, if, like, I think I I have no idea what how much film you've got to do for a short, but I would imagine it's about three or four times the amount when it finally gets edited down, maybe much more. But when it comes to a feature film, my God, <laughs> that must be quite nightmarish. Yeah. yeah so when you shoot a feature film, you're looking at I mean, some of them have got it down to, you know, a couple or even three weeks now for the really fast turnaround that you see with, I mean, if you take TV films, for example, you know, they're shot sometimes in two weeks, um, which is, yeah, it's incredibly fast. Um, and it's a very different kind of relationship. They, they kind of churn them out. And it's one of the reasons why you might watch a TV movie and you might just, you might have this kind of aura about it, which is a little bit different. Like it just feels a little bit different. Like maybe they don't cut back and forth very often between different camera angles, or maybe they have a lot of actors in shot at the same time. And they're all tricks that are used to, to reduce shooting time. Um, but generally speaking, a feature film, you know, you're looking at something like five or six weeks. Um, you're usually shooting, you know, around, you know, six, six days in a week with a day off. Um, and sometimes you're switching between day shooting and night shooting, which can which can can be interesting. Um, but you're only capturing um, often a few minutes of footage that's going to make it on screen. And of course, you're spending an in, entire day. Um, I mean, in our case, you know, with a film like Break Even, yeah, which is which is an indie film, which is a you know modest budget. Uh, film rescued 50 million dollars yeah. yeah we rescued 50 million dollars yeah um in that case because of the nature of that you're we were shooting a, a, quite a few scenes in a day an unusually large amount we run and gun to mm. keep production costs down as much as possible you have to with, with a film like that i mean we're a little bit unusual we we are unusually efficient compared to, to most um, but you do get this kind of run and gun nature. If you're on a major blockbuster, you know, you can be doing entire day shooting for, I don't know, a couple of minutes, a minute of footage, or maybe an action sequence, you know, part of an action sequence, which is a few seconds long. Yeah. And like this, I, for, you think a whole day for just a few seconds uh, or a couple of minutes and you'd like, go oh, right. And where when you're a writer, I imagine you just see it like, okay, I've wrote this scene. This is how, like, there you go. Then it's down to the director to get it out there and the actors to make it happen. When you're in the realm of, like, when you're in the mix with, as a producer, I imagine you start to, like, you, do you see it slightly differently because of the sort of added cost, maybe, or something like that? Oh, don't you just, I, I mean, it's amazing. You know, it's like, uh, I don't know. It's like if you maintain your own car, you're going to really care about the way other people drive. Or if you, if you do building work, you're going to really care about how people maintain their houses. Like you have this level of insight, mm. um, which is incredibly valuable. It's one of the reasons why working writers, can, you know, can be held in, in great esteem and, and, and become very valuable, particularly writers that produce, because they know the limitations, they know the problems that you're going to run into with things. And, you know, it can be really, really strange, the issues you do run into, because sometimes things that you think are going to be really cheap and easy, 
um, aren't and sometimes things that you think are going to be really expensive aren't for instance you know in the experience of making break even I, I we had you know a huge cast on that in in you know as it felt to me we have we have had a lot of day players you know people that came in for one or two days to shoot um and i thought that was that would be problematic but it's not if you do it right it's not and it can bring a, a lot of value um, one of the toughest areas is stunts um and knowing what you can do there and, and that was a strange experience for me because again like i i wrote i've got a scene in the in the movie which involves a boat stunt um and speaking to the director when i was writing it he was saying well you know i don't think we can really do this it's not gonna be realistic and i said oh don't worry would you we'd shoot it in a particular way where we'd cut away from the stunt and then we'd cut back to show the kind of result of the stunt and there'd be a sound effect and that's how we'd get away with it and well we got the stunt driver down on the yeah. day and he did it for real and so i ended up with a stunt that i didn't think we could do and i don't think it's ever been done in a film actually it's quite a cool stunt i won't spoil what the stunt is but it's quite neat and we also had a car chase and mm. i really kind of toned the car chase down in the writing knowing that we're probably gonna have a couple of vehicles maybe rentals maybe bought we'd race them around in the desert and there's not a lot we can do with that there's safety considerations and various other things maintenance for one well lo and behold um we get some of the stunt people down and we talk about this stunt chase and the stunt coordinator says well a friend of mine's got this great ramp that he has it's a really special kick ramp that that's great for launching vehicles off and you guys you've got this this ford raptor pickup truck which is this really kind of jacked up kind of testosterone injected ford f-150 with amazing amounts of suspension travel so this you know the stunt drivers come down and the, the driver is chuck norris's youngest eric norris uh -oh. um, was the driver and um yeah um there was a raptor there and he he launched this raptor jumped it twice and um it got we got some great footage with that and i was not expecting we were going to jump in cars in the desert so i you know i'm like this kid who grew up with knight rider and the a-team and all this stuff and i'm like we jumped a car. Like, don't, go on kit go on yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah i'm loving it just uh, like that oh yeah no put it this way if, if it was the a-team it would be the classic barrel roll which would happen every week. It's <laughs> like, oh yeah, barrel roll. Like, just Abs I know exactly what you mean. They threw those cars so far and so high, you know, and that was a big thing. You know, if you take something like the A-Team, for example, you know, back in the eighties and there were some other films that were doing, sorry, TV series that were doing this. They were doing film quality stunts on a weekly basis during those TV shows. The Fall, Fall Guy as well, oh. um, Skarsky and Hutch. And that was a big deal because what they were doing is the A-Team, or they would have they'd have an a unit you know the first unit would go out and they would shoot all the stuff with the actors and they would have what's called a, a second unit and that would be a separate camera crew it would be a whole second you know unit of, of director and everything else and they would go out with the stunt team and they would shoot the, those brilliant stunt sequences and write off a lot of vans and jeeps and things like that and they've got it refined down they got the whole air cannon or ramp refined yeah. down so every week those guys would roll a car and that would get spliced in uh, and you know what every week you knew they would cut back to the car 
and you see like a couple of guys yeah just to show exactly okay. <laughs> it's so true it's so true was it firing guns everywhere ak-47s no one no one took a bullet uh, well there was one episode where like uh hannibal took a bullet like he like, oh. took one bullet once but apart from that yeah yeah like going, that makes sense. fighting force but every time you shoot him <laughs> to the ground someone runs away <laughs> it's like the oh it's amazing and then yeah locked in some type of like garage or shed where you like create a mass a massive machine which takes everyone out yeah. with a watermelon or something like that <laughs> oh yeah it, it was a great combo wasn't it? it was it was strategy it was brains it was ingenuity it was yeah. thinking on your feet and it was taking on the bad guys but you know, never, never taking a life in the process, and uh, you know, there's some good values behind it. Absolutely, yes. And Knight Rider, yes. Michael, yeah, Knight will forever be king. <laughs> One thing, I um, I was chatting to a guy. Um, his his partner, she was working on set, um, as 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 a production assistant, and and he directs some of the episodes of the U.S. Office and the the Mindy Project. Yeah. Uh, great guy, nice guy. And he's oh. got a, a Night Industries 2000 replica, a really nice one. And I was talking to him last night, actually, and he said, next time you come over, um, you'll have to go for a ride. And I'm like, I'm in. I'm developing a vaccine if it means I get to ride in kit. <laughs> yeah, that's like, yeah. Look, it's the highest levels in, of contagion in the whole country. Look. <laughs> yeah. I'll make yeah, it happen. Man, I'm swimming across. Ah, loving it. <laughs> so with like with break even, that is your current project at this moment in time. Um, is like you mentioned that Corona's put things on slightly on hold. Is it a case of you're trying to find a home for it to be distributed or something right now? Or yeah, that's so that's the process. So we we got we we wrapped um just before May last year, it went into post, um, post-production. Um, that was quite an intense thing. And I think that brought us through to about March this year where it was, it was all done, signed off, edited, quality control. That, that's a tough area these days. Um, and we had a plan and um, we had a, we had a good plan. Um, and Corona derailed us somewhat um you've got an issue of people aren't at their in their office people aren't at their desk people can't get documents signed um people are losing their jobs um in entire departments are just frozen you've got acquisition departments who are saying we are not doing any acquisitions right now we had We've had some big players sniff around at the the film because it it punches so much above its weight. Um, I'm hoping to have a release date I'll be able to announce, you know, sometime in the near future on that. I'm glad to say that I think the landscape is changing. Um, People are coming up with new plans. We've got an issue with, you know, theatrical. What is going on with theatrical? The new Top Gun movie, Maverick. We don't, you know, they don't know what to, how to release this film. Everyone's having issues. So it's all about finding the ideal place to be. I mean, for example, 
you know, physical's really good. Now actual DVD sales are up. Um, streaming, streaming is going crazy for some of the smaller streamers. They're seeing massive, massive growth. Yeah, I would imagine stream would be something like maybe it might not have been your plan originally. And I don't know what you might have in the works. But with regards to how all of the streaming companies right now are hungry for content, that if you went with app, like Apple, uh, Amazon, and the big boy of Netflix itself, like there are some companies like, yeah, right now, content, 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 and people are very hungry for it. Well, these companies are hungry for content. Uh, like, yeah, so I don't, mm. yeah. Is it, I mean, distribution is a very, very interesting area. And it's this area that a lot of people ignore. They, they want to go out and make a film. Yeah. And they're excited about that. Want to make the best film possible, get the best camera gear, get the best actors, get the best script ready. Yeah. Um, and they want to grade it beautifully, shoot in 5K, get a beautiful product out there. Um, and they will raise the money because they have to raise the money to get the film made. So they'll, they'll do that. And chances are they'll get a new investor, um, someone who's probably been told, do not invest in film clubs or restaurants the three worst places you can go with your new money and they've got no 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 this is sexy i want to go around the clubs in hollywood and i want to go to the fancy parties in the hills you know so they invest and the filmmakers don't have an exit strategy they don't have a plan to get this out on the market in a way that it's going to actually return you know, profit for the investors. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of people have this kind of dreamy idea and they're going to go, you know what, if we make a good enough film and we make a fuss about it, people will see it. It will get noticed. It will be this kind of, a lot of the terms they'll use indie darling or festival darling. And everyone thinks they're going to be the indie darling or the festival darling. It's their film that people are going to go, Hey, check this out. It was number one in Sundance. <laughs> you know, you know and, and, that, and, and people, like, that's so tough to get something like that. Um, and, and so what you end up with, sadly, is you end up with productions where they do a red carpet event at their own cost um, and everyone dresses up and they tweet about it and they Instagram about it and whatever and no one pays any attention. And then the actual producers themselves kind of go around town uh, and 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 quite you know ch chippy at first and they're like okay this is good it's a good film it's a good film um, they haven't when they were developing they haven't they hadn't thought about who they could cast to make it as commercial as possible they haven't thought about whether or not the product is commercial as possible they haven't thought about necessarily the technicalities in terms of quality control and that is it's actually a viable product and they go around and maybe they try and get in some festivals and that costs them a lot of money and doesn't go anywhere. So then they go, mm, okay, then we better have some meetings. They don't go anywhere. And then they think, well, maybe we should get a sales agent and they get the worst sales agent in the world ever who like gives them a predatory contract. They just take the rights. They're like, they're never even going to try. And then what happens is they look at streaming as their only option. They think, well, it can't be that bad, can it? And they realize how much they're going to make on this movie. And they realize how much their investors have spent in total. That's when it can get really messy. And, you know, who I'm involved with, 
um, we don't go in without a plan to get out. We ain't spending anyone's money without the intention that they're going to get some checks back to them as, as fast as possible and in compensation. So, yeah, you know, if you're in the acquisitions department, it's an interesting time. A lot of films are going nowhere. So they're looking for content, but there's also a lot of content out there. Right. So, okay. Yeah, because this is the thing. Well, like, Forget Disney Plus because I, I subscribe to it, but it's like a case of they, everything's been put on hold, their whole content is so it's all back library stuff. Uh, but when I see, when I look at Amazon and when I look at Netflix, and I don't know how Netflix keeps pulling this genie out of that, like out of the bowl because every, it's been like, it feels like every week without fail, they have brought something new out off the bag um like there's a tv show i like to watch uh which they um good girls is about like this crew i don't know if you've watched it i'm aware of it because we've i've got a project um very similar ah okay yeah so crew of lady like crew of mothers two sisters and like their best friend like they stumble onto this counterfeiting uh racket what go which is going on and they sort of see how they sort of slowly become more and more emerge. It's like, it's like breaking, like breaking bad, but with counterfeit cash. That's the easiest way of, I can explain it. But they brought that out. And now this week, I believe they've got Umbrella Academy coming out. And like, yeah, week before that, maybe two weeks before they had um, the Old Guard and then other things, well, other things which I haven't been interested in coming out, but they've been bang, 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 bang. And other places have not been so much with like up to the task. So I was like thinking, yeah, there are still other places hungry for it. But when you say, okay, you kind of look at streaming from like your point of view on the business side, you like, oh my God, you want to just give us that much? Uh, or every time it's shown, is it sort of like pennies a showing or how does that work? Do you know, or is it well, we've, the There's a few models with streaming and there's people coming up with new, new interpretations of it all the time. And there are models out there where, you know, people take a royalty payment per screening. Um, you know, Amazon introduced that interesting system where they had a pot, I think it was something like a million dollars, and then that was distributed um, on a percentage basis originally to, to the different people. So if only 10 people put a movie on their system and one of those 10 got 80% of the viewings, they would get 80% of that fund. Um, that's one way of doing it, you know, which is, uh, you know, like a participation model. Um, but, but most sales or licensing deals are involved on some kind of upfront fee, upfront payment or a sequence of payments. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to be careful with that because there are streaming services out there, big ones, and you could be waiting two years before you actually receive anything. And the other issue with streaming is if you sell to a global streamer, um, you've just lost all opportunity to to sell individual regional deals because your stream is in every region already. So you've potentially lost out from that as well. Um, 
I'm not saying that streaming's any worse than anything else or any better, but you, people can have an overly romantic, romanticized concept. I know of people, they have made a million dollar budget movies with majorly known talent in them, paid a lot for that talent, mm. and they've taken $700,000 deals on streaming off the back of it. So, I mean, their investors eaten 300000 with nothing in down the road really at all yeah like uh, like i'm basically talking from a place of ignorance when it comes to this type of thing but like when you're like talking two years down the line um what like how um how on earth is anyone meant to be able to still continue to make content if you've got to wait on like from a check for two years look People like grumble about 90 days if you have to pay an invoice, but two years? Come on. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, di- distribution deals can, can often span quite a, 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 a large amount of time. I mean, we had, we had a major studio looking at our project. They wanted, you know, um, rights for 25 years or something like that. Um, so, some of these deals are, are, are incredibly long term yeah but the thing is so if you take for example well let's say and i'm an investor and i want to put 10 million dollars into something anything right i'm looking at the stock market i'm gonna you know if i'm investing and not trading i'm looking at what five percent a year if i'm lucky yeah. maybe i'm going to be in it for 10 25 years something like that if i look at building and construction i think what's the return on that seven and a half percent maybe ten percent if you're good you're looking at 10 year turnarounds on a lot of that from initial investment to planning to planning permission to construction to actually fulfilling on that so on the kind of scale in the investment this kind of scale investment people are making film can actually be quite good even if these time periods are two three five years even if even if you're not necessarily getting your first payment for that you know for two years because maybe that payment is 1.5 times your initial investment or, you know maybe you're making 50 percent back maybe you're going to make three three times what you're invested back in a few years so the rate of return, you have to compare it to kind of major investments. And in that case, film can be quite dynamic. And generally speaking, a good investor needs to be investing in a slate. So whilst that film's being made and he's going out, getting its distribution, you're on to the next project within that slate. Mm-hmm. So if the investor's got 10 million, maybe you would make, I mean, at the moment, you would almost certainly try to make 10, $1 million movies because that's, that's going to be a sustainable model. So you would then give yourself 10 years. Okay. Right. I like it. Very challenging, uh, to say the least. Um, yeah. My God. So, okay. So... <clears throat> The distribution side, you know, that it does trip me out listening to that because, yeah, because the way I think everyone sees it is like you make the movie, like you put it out there, and like, don't get me wrong, I would say the majority of people just like you make the movie, you put it out there, and the the distribution side kind of disappears into the ether because they have no idea about it. Mm. But then it's like you make X amount of money, like if it's in the theater it takes their cut and then basically you get that money back like whatever the percentage that might be 
I imagine with when you're talking about studios which get involved, they're taking their cut. So by the time it comes back to yourselves, it's like you're getting what's remaining after the movie, well, after the theaters take their cut if it's been released in the cinema. And then what comes out of the marketing department and everything like this. And then basically the movie company taking it like taking their cut. So it doesn't seem like you get a lot back. Like if you made uh, like a hundred million, you might be seeing like 20 million out of that hundred or 30, or is it better than that? Or am I it, it can vary a lot. It can vary a trend, tremendous amount. You know, some people self-distribute, some people, um, they, they, they have a strategy where they try to retain as much profit for themselves as possible. But yes, I mean, so it's, it's called a waterfall and um, there are all these different stages that, 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 as you say, things go down. And the thing is, a lot of those stages are tiered and time dependent. If you look at a theatrical release, for example, so... You know, I, I don't think a lot of people realize this, but if you go and watch a major blockbuster movie um, at the opening weekend, mm. um, that cinema, that movie theater, probably isn't making a penny off your ticket. Um, they're, they're probably making zero cash whatsoever. Um, they're making the money off the food at that point. Um, and then as time goes on, the theater takes more and more and the distributor takes less and less. So that can change dynamically down the line. All your different deals that you've pieced together globally, they can all be different as well in terms of how, when, and how much of the, the money you get coming back to you. And then you've got other issues like, for instance, if you've used a sales agent, then the sales agent's going to have a charge on that, as an agent typically does. The sales agent might have costs attributed to marketing and selling the film that have now been tacked on. If you sell to a major studio, that major studio, let's say they have to go and do um, voiceovers for different regions. Maybe there's various other marketing things that might get tacked on to the overall cost. So, you know, you know, um, you might not actually break even until further on down the line. It's one of the reasons why you try to keep your budget as low as possible because people don't realize how much this all adds up. So yeah, then you've got the waterfall, um, within the production itself. So um, you might have what's called, you know, offsetting, so to speak, um, where you'll pay, you, you owe people. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of it's generally frowned upon for producers to do this, but um, what they will do is, you know, maybe a, the writer, maybe someone like me, maybe I take a pay cut because I'm going to get something when, when the film sells. Mm -hmm. So then those people will get what they're owed first. And then the investor gets what they've paid plus a certain percentage of profit. And then the, then that the income gets spread between the lead producer and the investors, the lead producer's share is then shared between people that he's given points to in terms of participation. So yeah, there's all these tiers. There's a, a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of numbers. Um, everyone needs to be able to audit those numbers ideally. So you, people can sometimes fall down with that. They don't know how much a movie's made and they, and they can't find out because it's not in their contract. And then you've also got the situation, well, let's say your movie's doing really well, but the studio or the distributor or whomever isn't doing as well off that movie as they would from another movie they have 
that they have the rights to. Yeah. Well, guess what they're going to do? Mm. They're going to they're going to stop screening your movie. They're going to go, okay, then we'll let that run out, and we'll let the other one run in because we're going to make more movie off that one. So you can actually end up in a situation where their interests are against yours. So. You know, I don't want to project anything because it's a, fr- a very friendly, decent industry and it's good and it's wholesome. But yeah, people make de- business decisions and you can get really strongly affected by that. You know, the moral of the story is make your movie for as little as you can possibly get away with making it for. You know, more doesn't necessarily mean better. Well, yes, I, I've watched the King Arthur movie. I'll say, I'll say all I can say about that. But like, this is the thing, like you've, like that sounds like an awful lot of plates to have spinning, and like just like to keep track of that all, and like you you go yes I I'm an assistant producer no no but that still is a lot of work and that's like okay wow, but what then possessed you to come up with is it script revolutions? <laughs> yeah, script revolution. Yeah. yeah. So, so I spoke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I spoke earlier about that supply and demand issue. Yeah. Um, screenwriting, there's no barrier to entry. Um, now it's easier than ever. You can pick up a Chromebook and you can start writing a screenplay and you can email. If you've got a Hollywood producer's email address, you've, you're perfectly able to email them that to them. They're probably going to say, crying out loud, please don't do that. <laughs> but you can. And that barrier to entry just isn't there. So a lot of people are getting into screenwriting and have been getting into screenwriting worldwide for some time now emails really change things and digital technologies really change things so what we have is we have this massive supply and demand issue everyone's targeting hollywood hollywood you know we've got only got a few studios now and there's only really a handful of actual sizable indie studios that go out and make the majority of content so everyone's targeting them Mm. there's a lot of people trying to get a screenplay sold there's not a lot of people in Hollywood in particular who want to buy them and as a result of that what's happened is we've seen a lot of gatekeeping build up in the last 10 years or so um, some quite predatory businesses going out there and charging people to try and get exposure and I watched that happen over a few years and it was getting to the point where it felt like if you just wanted to get your script listed somewhere online where people could find it, it's going to cost you a lot of money, a lot of money per month, money that me as a guy living in the Western world found harsh. And I'm thinking if I am in other areas of the world where the dollar is incredibly strong Mm. and you know, $50 a month, is like the equivalent of $500 a month, you know? How are those people ever going to break in? How is, how is their industry ever going to build up if everyone's obsessed with Hollywood? How are they going to find motivation and hope and everything else? And this thing was bugging me for a couple of years. I was just like, please, someone just build it. it, it it's possible. I, I, you know, I, I come from a web development background. Please, I don't want to be the guy that builds it. <laughs> it was July the 4th, 2016. Yeah. And you will totally relate to this because this really fits in with your personality type and how you are about how you do things. And it was July the 4th and I was like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And then I just had this name, Script Revolution. And I'm like, I'm all in. I've got to make this happen. I've got to make it happen as fast as possible. 
And I ended up building this site and it was launched by August 1st. It's our fourth birthday on Saturday. You know, today's the 28th. We're doing <laughs> this on the 28th. And um, yeah, it was out by August 1st. I just went for it, super intense. And yeah. I've just launched this website where anyone can list their screenplay for free and anyone can join up and read those screenplays. So, you know, if you're in, you know, uh, if you're in any of the BRICS countries, you know, if you're in Brazil, if you're in South Africa, if you're in, you know, areas of, of Russia or areas like that, you can still be a part of this if you're a filmmaker. You don't have to go get into a certain clique. If you're a script writer, you can put as much of your material on there as you want at zero cost. And, you know, it's out there. Hopefully you're going to get some exposure. People are going to like it, upvote it, you know, and everything else. So, you know, I've created what I call it a scriptocracy. Um, you know, it's the basis of good scripts get attention. It's as simple as that. You don't need to pay people to read them. You don't need to pay people to evaluate them. You don't need to pay someone to host it. It's a good script. It will get noticed. So, yeah, I've been running that for four years and we're just off 7,000 7, members now. Wow, but that is marvelous growth right there. But wow, it's being able to be that bridge to help connect people to other uh, people where they can get their like stories out there and hopefully made either in a short film, a short film or a feature film. That is uh, fantastic work there. But like, but to go, yeah, the fourth of July, okay, and then by the first. That's like, a, uh, how many hours a day were you working on that? To get it was crazy. It was crazy. I mean, it was, it was every hour. And it was that situation where I went in, not sure if I could do it. I mm. was just, you know what? Maybe I can't make this. Maybe it's beyond me. Because I didn't have tremendous programming skills or anything like that. I, I didn't know how to get it made. I had a rough idea. And I knew it was most likely possible but I didn't really know fully how to get there. So it was an intense four weeks of just learning on the fly and trying things and having these kind of eureka moments. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'd done, you know, four years of trying to break in writing at that point. Freelancing was slow, you know, because I was trying to do a bit of freelancing on the side. I really needed to throw myself into something that wasn't writing 100%. So it was a nice break in that respect. But yeah, it takes up a lot of my time now. And with it being an international thing, it's not unusual for me to climb into bed at midnight and then have to jump straight back out again because an email's come through about something or there's an issue that needs clearing up. So it's always there. But um, we have a rock star system on there now where members can get rock star status because um, what happened was people were wanted to send me money <laughs> it was free and i wanted money and then people was just like well i want to send you money and then i was like well if you want to send me money i mean if you want to support it that's good it's, we don't want this to fail it's a movement mm. and then people pointed out patreon and i looked at patreon and i was like oh i don't want to do this but when i looked at the videos about it i was like mm, okay People want to be part of something and support something. I'm like, yeah. yeah, I can enable that. Okay, I can help them with that. So we started a Patreon account and people started joining like that. And that's where the Rockstar thing started. And they were paying, they pay $5 a month. And now there's a choice between $5 a month or 
$50 a year and they get like stats and they get featured a little bit more and they just get the status more than anything and are able to say, I'm part of this revolution. And I'm not going to lie, it, it saved the site doing that. It got close. You know, my life got close to the point where I might, I would have had to have shut it down. Now, this is the thing I find with regards to when Patreon first came around, it was one of those things was like, I, I'll tell you, I, I may have scoffed at it. So I go, Patreon, what's this about? But when you think about when, like, you've got creative types out there, like, it's quite a struggle to, like, if to get sort of noticed on, say, a YouTube or anything like this, or basically to launch something which people would pay for on a, like, day-to-day basis. And when you're talking, if someone's, like, paying £5 a month, like, the price of maybe a coffee and a half from Starbucks uh, to put towards something which is positive, good, and basically helps people more or helps that particular artist. I don't see anything wrong with that. Like where people used to spend out, yeah, 20, 30 pounds on like a bunch of magazine subscriptions. If it's helping support a person do what they love to do and it brings joy to that person. Yeah. I like I had to turn I had to admit to myself I was wrong about the whole Patreon thing and go right. It's what people it's just helping people do what they want to do and helping them bring a little bit more, hopefully, fingers crossed, a little bit more positive energy into the world. But yeah. But like this is the thing. Something about yourself and your character when like earlier in the conversation you mentioned, yeah like traveling here, traveling there and doing freelancing and everything like this. Um, I don't, like, I think this was always in your cards. You met, you thought of it. No one else was doing it. And I, I've got to say, uh, you might be a little bit of, you might have a little bit of a renegade heart, uh, my friend, yeah. uh, to yeah. say the least. So this is why I'm not surprised that you went, yeah, I, I did it. <laughs> you know that's that's so true you know yeah. and you know i think that it is just in a lot of us to be that person that stands up and does something mm. and and when you care about it so much i think for me you know it was the effect that trying to break in had on on my psyche it was the pain that i went through mm. trying to do something it was also that feeling of i'm never you know what am i going to do that makes an actual difference in this world maybe i'll never get a film made this was like 2016 nothing was really happening or felt like it was really happening and i'm just thinking about all those writers out there who were in a, a you know a form of pain who felt like there was just nothing out there that was giving them anything back. Um, and I really struggled with the Patreon thing, you know, just like you mentioned there, you know, that kind of scoffing of what people just give you money. Yeah. They just give you money to just do what you like doing or want to do. I had to email Patreon and say, can I even put this on your system? You know, I'm not a YouTuber. I'm not a painter or anything like that this is this is a website which hosts scripts and they were like yeah that's absolutely fine get it on there i would be pleased to have it but you know the funny thing was at the time i was already a patreon supporter of a youtube channel called fully charged which is a channel all about electric cars run by robert llewellyn he played a character called Crichton on red dwarf yeah yeah, great guy. Oh, yeah. And, it's a, and it's a brilliant show. Fully Charged is a great show. And I was already Patreon-supported Fully Charged. 
not because I wanted early access to their YouTube videos, but because I believed in what they were doing. So it was this really kind of bizarre case of kind of double think in my head where I was happy to contribute to something. Whereas when it was thinking of contributing to what I want to do, I was immediately like, Ooh, I feel, I don't sure if I'm comfortable mm. with that. And then, you know, I just couldn't just take Patreon donations from people. I had to give them more back. So we started to have webinars and things like that. And, you know, to be honest, most, most people that sign up to rockstar status get something back, which immediately compensates way beyond what they've put in. And uh, we were able to give a lot back to them as well. So it's working out really nicely. Ah, excellent. And when you say you do webinars, is it like once a month or is it more than that? Is it like a couple of times? So through COVID, we've been doing every two or three weeks. And what will happen is we'll have a webinar and it will be myself and it will be my lead producer from Breakeven, Shane Stanley. Now, Shane Stanley, he's done everything in Hollywood. This guy, you know, he executive produced the Gridiron Gang, which was a box office number one um globally you know and and help the rock you know become as known as dwayne johnson and yeah. became become well known off the back of it and and share a wonderful story you know his his father and his father's charity group was the original thing behind gridiron you know the project that started gridiron gang and the the tv documentary um and you know shane's won emmys um in his teens he ran charlie sheen's production company in his 20s he's been in all the big studios he knows everyone he's done everything so who better to bring in to a bunch of young screenwriters or aspiring screenwriters and filmmakers and give them advice real advice you know genuine advice because there's a lot of people out there want to give bad advice probably in exchange for money because they think they know something and they don't so we've been doing these sessions and they've been going on as long as six and a half hours in some cases. Um, but the rock stars come in and they learn a tremendous amount. And a lot of it is very bespoke to their needs as well. So they'll talk about what they're doing uh, and Shane will get quite invested and involved in that. So they'll get specific ideas on, on how to move forward. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, for the future, what would be, like, what would it be your ideal thing? Would it be the movie side of things? Would it be the, like, basically, would it be the uh, <clears throat> script revolution? What would be the sort of thing you would like to take onto the next stage, the next level? Well, I mean, my, my passion, absolute passion is making movies that's quite interesting you know if you could ask me that a couple of years ago i would have said writing movies i would not have dared say making movies but i have a tremendous passion for getting movies made i you know there's there's a businessman deep down within me um and i love the business of film and making films on profit and films that reach an audience and you know you can't you can't make a bad film that does well really unless you're a massive studio you can push it through marketing you've got to make good films and good films will do well if they're made with a business-minded um, attitude so that has all my attention i really want to be in a situation where i'm writing and co-producing a few movies a year and we're getting these things out there and we're kind of starting a, a kind of a new movement within the film world with the kind of films i want to make i'm quite a pulpy writer i like female-led stuff i want to make that happen um script revolution i feel fulfilled by doing it but it's it's tough 
it's really tough um and it's ongoing all the time it's a lot of technical stuff um i would love to build that up and i'd love to bring people in to to help with that at some point um to help automate it to some extent um i don't know where script revolution needs to go exactly uh, but i'm definitely in it for the long term as i'm sure about that excellent excellent um if there was one movie director you could work with who would it be um jim cameron i think Ooh. i think that would be the guy i am um, you know I, if you read about his history yeah um he was a truck driver who was going to the library after you know between shifts and photocopying the sections of books to learn um every movie he's made has been hard to get funded every movie he's made has been hard to to complete and every movie he's made he's kind of got a bit screwed on the deal um and he just keeps going um if you i mean it's worth watching as a documentary you can i think you might be able to catch it on youtube although i'm not too sure about the legality of that but it is on youtube if anyone wants to find it and superior firepower which is all about making aliens um the, the, the feature film in um, and they made that in london and, you know and you and if you look at making the abyss and things like that that guy is on another level like his ability to just <clears throat> soldier through and i'd love to see that it would be a tough experience but i'd love to see that um you know i'm a i'm a big tarantino fan also um but um i'd be more interested in chatting with someone like that about his writing process than actually necessarily working with him on set Superb. like i've got to say aliens yeah alien like yeah which scared the bejesus out of me i've got to say when i was a kid and then when i watched aliens which i've got to say if you want to watch a film which basically brings together a whole team and like in one film and that's like, oh, these are all the people and like you get them immediately. Aliens is second to none. Like if you want to see it, that type of thing done badly, watch the Justice League movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, oh, they, that, this is this person. That, no, no, no. I know what you mean. You know, it's quite interesting because a lot of blockbuster movies from the past probably wouldn't hold up well if they were released today. People still like watching them and they're great movies, but I'm not sure that they would feel big enough. Like even a film like Jurassic Park, I'm not sure that would feel big enough being released as a summer blockbuster now in a world of, you know, Marvel films and everything else. You know, you look at Jurassic World, that's more the kind of scale you have to be now. And perhaps why those new movies don't work as as well as actual films. But a lot of, you know, those older films like Die Hard would be more like an indie film now than a, a feature, you know, a blockbuster. And, you know, and I say and I say that with absolute admiration. But Aliens, Aliens is one of those films that if it was released tomorrow, I think would still feel massive. Well, put it this way, Aliens still holds up today with regards to the look the feel all of the like special effects still hold up if you look at like star wars movies like back in like back in the day well not the original star wars movies but the prequels 
they, those don't look like they hold up today. <laughs> you know, and they I have, agree. Well, I agree. You know, yeah. like, um, uh, I've got to, I was about to say the original Star Wars, but no. Apart from the lightsaber fights, where mm. like if you compare the choreography, it's it's just totally different. It's like yeah, <laughs> it's just like you look at Rogue One and you're like, oh, when Darth Vader comes through at the end, you look like, oh yeah. And then it, if you think the Star Wars movie comes after that and their lightsaber fight, you go, oh no. <laughs> That's it, man. I mean that is so true. And you know, in Star Wars was effectively the first blockbuster film ever made really it was it set the template for that but now you know and i say this and then some people nod their heads you know those in the industry would nod their heads and those people outside it kind of fall aghast but you could probably make a star wars now for a million dollar budget like it would not be it would there would be a lot of corners cut definitely in your special effects and areas like that but you could still make a film on that scale you know there are people out there you know like the asylum studios like that and they make mockbusters more than blockbusters so to speak but you know they kind of prove that you can get most of the way there on a, on a very small budget if, if you forgo maybe talent the value of talent and stuff like that yeah. um it's it's really surprising so yeah you know what i love about jim cameron and if you watch him work, he knows how the models are made. He knows how the special effects works. He's a cinematographer at heart. He's a great writer. I think his writing's just brilliant, really, in terms of making good commercial entertaining movies. Um, and he just seems to know every single step. I mean, he was mar- he married his producer as well. So, you know, he was like the producing side was well covered on top of that. Um, yeah, that's what amazes me. I love, I, I like people like that who wear a lot of different hats. They really impress me. I'm sure in the future you will be wearing many a hat yourself. Um, yeah, <laughs> no doubt, rocking it. Like I'll be sitting here going, I remember when I was very CJ and like, yeah, we talk movies. Uh, yes, yeah, I have no doubt in my mind. Yeah, big things are in store for you, better things. And yeah, I know you're up for the challenge because yeah, like. I'm going to have to have you back on again because, yeah, there's stuff about your early life and stuff I want to like, talk to you about. But time is a, my enemy today. <laughs> well, thanks, that. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate the support. You know, it's, um, it's a tough world. You're all, in the film industry, you're always walking on really thin ice. You never, you never quite feel safe and the kind of plummet through is going to be pretty horrific. So, you know, any support is always really appreciated. Uh, I am happy to give it, and by all means, if I can help in any way, like just give me a call and I'll be happy to do that. Uh, CJ, could you tell the lovely people out there how they can reach you as well? Yeah, so I've got a website, you know, cjwally.com, you know, cjwally.com. Um, you can catch me on Twitter, cj underscore wally, I'm on there. Um, and obviously script revolution scriptrevolution.com as well where you can you know if you are a writer or you feel like trying writing or anything like that or you're a filmmaker jump on the website and check it out it's free and open to everybody perfect perfect all of that will be in the description down below um, or in the episode notes so f- please get in contact with CJ he's a wonderful guy I've got to say it and yes I look forward to getting him back on in the future yes 
many a plans going on. (laughs) Fellow, Fellow life warrior. Oh, damn right. Ah, loving it. He's embracing the life warrior lifestyle. Liking it. Uh, I'd like to say thank you to you, CJ. It's been a pleasure and an honor. And yes, I'd like to say thank you uh, to one and all out there. Please stay well, stay safe, be awesome, be excellent, be fantastic. Be all the positive bees you can be in this world and then some. Have a great day, guys. Peace. Aha. And we are...